This episode is sponsored by me, Andy Hill, the host of this show. If you're looking for someone to support you on your family, wealth, and happiness journey, I'm taking on a select number of coaching clients this year. To work with me one-on-one for your family finances, go to marriagekidsandmoney.com slash coaching to learn more. Obviously, if you have enough passive income where you don't really need that job to survive, then I mean, how amazing would work be if you really didn't have to work and you just work because you like the people and you enjoy the mission and what you do, right? This show is dedicated to helping you strengthen your family tree and live financially free. Welcome to the Marriage, Kids, and Money podcast, everybody. This is Andy Hill, and today we're bringing you another best of MKM episode. Yes, we'll be featuring our most downloaded episode of 2020 entitled How This Stay-at-Home Dad Makes $200,000 Per Year in Passive Income. And it's featuring the man, the myth, the legend, Sam Dogan from Financial Samurai. Not only was this our most downloaded episode in 2020, it's currently our most downloaded episode of all time. All right, let's jump into today's show. A lot of us have had this moment in our lives. We become parents and we want less time working and more time with family, but the income is just not there to support it. Today, I'm going to talk with someone who has developed enough passive income to spend less time on work and more time raising his son. Sam Dogan is my guest today. Sam is the writer behind Financial Samurai, a blog and podcast dedicated to slicing through money's mysteries. He is a regular contributor to CNBC and has been featured in major publications like Market Watch, Business Insider, and Forbes. When he's not writing or talking about money, he likes coaching and playing tennis and enjoying delicious food in San Francisco with his wife and young son. Welcome to the show, Sam. Hey, thanks for having me, Andy. Absolutely. So, Sam, when did you decide that growing your passive income was a good idea for you? So, the the time that I decided was the very first day of work. It was 1999. It was August. And I had to get into work at 5.30 a.m. This was the trading floor at One New York Plaza in New York City. And I remember staying until 7.30 p.m., so that was a 14-hour day. And after about a week of this, I was thinking to myself, there's no way, there's no way I could keep this up for 20, 30 years like my parents did in their careers. So it was that first week, that first day, I thought, you know what, I better save as many of my pennies as possible to get the hell out of finance as soon as possible. Yeah. So what, what did you do in finance then? So I was in international equities, sales and trading. And I don't know if there's, uh, if you remember, there's this guy who wrote this op-ed piece called Why I Left Goldman Sachs. Mm. And he kind of basically threw the company under the bus and said there were all these bad things going on. He was basically pissed off that he didn't get a nice bonus. Mm. Anyway, he was the guy who uh, took my seat after I left two years later to go to San Francisco to work for a new firm. Okay. So working in finance, so you lived in New York at the time and then you moved to San Francisco shortly after that. Is that about right? Yeah. Two years in New York City, uh, grinding away, living in a studio apartment with another fella, and then coming out to San Francisco in 2001 and working from 2001 until 2013. Okay. No, not 2013, 2012. Hmm. 
Excellent. So you moved to San Francisco and then at that point you said, hey, I've got to try to live on less that I make and make a lot of passive income in order to kind of create this lifestyle I want. Was that difficult? Obviously, New York's expensive. San Francisco's expensive. Was it tough to make that decision to try to live on less than you make and, and save a lot? No, no, not at all. Um, it, work was just so difficult. It was brutal. Uh, the hours were brutal. The expectations were extremely high. Uh, the bosses were very demanding. The clients were difficult. It was so brutal that just saving an extra dollar or a hundred dollars made me feel so great from the very beginning, from the first week that I just started saving more and more and more with a specific goal to achieve enough passive income to cover my basic living expenses. And I didn't know exactly when that would be, but you know, over time you just kind of track your expenses and you say, well, okay, 30,000, you're probably not going to, you're not going to starve death. And so I had a goal of trying to get to about a hundred thousand in passive income or semi-passive income. Um, but I didn't get there before I left in 2012. I got to about 80,000. Wow. That's incredible. That's a, that's a great jump though. So can you talk a little bit about your income side of things, working in finance and these big firms, you obviously probably got a big income, but living in those big expensive cities can probably, you know, eat up a bit of it. So what were you making around that time? And, and how did you grow your, your active income, I guess, over that time? So I didn't make a lot of money in the beginning. Um, I remember clearly being disappointed when I got, got my first offer letter. It was for $40,000 base salary. Now, that was 1999, but I was still disappointed that I was working at a large investment bank and my base salary was only 40000 And at the time, I remember looking up um, the cost of living differential calculator, and 40000 is like twenty was like twenty two or 23000 in Dallas or Houston. So it wasn't big bucks especially since Manhattan was so expensive. Uh, but there was a little bit of a bonus. It was like a $5,000 or $10,000 sign-on bonus. And over time, so what happened was after two years, I, I thought I was going to get fired because the dot-com bubble had collapsed and everybody was um, basically getting pushed out left and right. And so I had Hunter called for my VP on the desk who graciously handed over the phone to me. And I talked to the headhunter who said they were looking for someone to do my job in San Francisco at a different firm. And so one thing led to another, and I was able to escape after two years to a new firm with a new salary, and I got a bump up in salary to about 80, 80, I think it was $80,000 as a first-year associate. And then so by the time I left my day job in 2012, uh, the base salary had jumped to 250000 because after the financial crisis, uh, they actually, ironically, raised base salaries because they were going to cut all bonuses. That was like not – it wasn't a good look to give people bonuses anymore after the mm-hmm. financial crisis. So before the financial crisis in 2000 and I think it was seven, I had like a base salary of about 150000 which was good. It was great. And the bonuses were okay. Um, but after the financial crisis in 2008, 2009, a lot of things changed. The upside changed. The correlation with effort and performance and reward changed. And I didn't feel like I was a good guy anymore because Main Street hated people who worked in finance. Even though I had nothing to do with the housing market collapse in America, I was working in international equities, specifically Asian equities. Yeah, so you said 
around, you know, 250 by the time you were done and you sort of in that general range, but you're living in a very expensive city. So, I mean, that seems like a lot of money, but that can add up. And I know you've had a lot of conversation recently on Twitter or, or off of Twitter about the amount of money you need to live in these high cost cities. Um, yeah. and people have difficulty making this happen. I've had some folks write me and say, how do I make this work? I'm living in a major, major city and I'm making a hundred thousand dollars. This is, this seems so difficult. Why is this so difficult? Have you found any sort of resolutions for people who are living in a high cost city that seem to make a good six figure salary to try to survive as parents? Well, it is, you know, when people listen to these numbers, they think, wow, that's so, so much money. I'd be totally fine. And frankly, you will be fine, but it's not like you're just crushing it and saving a lot of money and, uh, you know, gonna sail off into the sunset, especially if you have kids. There was a report that came out recently, just the National Association of Realtors and just the housing urban development reports. They say that low income in San Francisco is considered making less than around $115,000 if you have one child. Mm -hmm. That's considered low income. So you would be qualifying for low income housing and so forth. And to afford the median 1.6 million home in San Francisco, uh, it would require about a $343,000 household income. And so that's the reality. So when you listen to these numbers, you need to take into account where someone lives, the taxes he or she pays and the amount of kids he or she has. And so obviously, given I've lived in San Francisco for since 2001 and I lived in New York City for two years and I'm from Hawaii, Honolulu, Hawaii, I've been living in some of the most expensive cities in America. And that's where my audience lies. About 45 to 50 percent of the American population lives in an expensive coastal city and you know places like um, Chicago as well. Yeah. But Chicago is actually not that expensive in relation to a lot of the coastal cities. So how to make it work? I mean, you have to save in, to the point where it hurts every single month. That's one of the key basic models that I have for all my readers and all my listeners is that if the amount of money you're saving each month doesn't hurt, you're not saving enough. And anybody who's had braces can attest to this fact about the numbness and pain in their mouths when they're the orthodontist is tightening, tightening the screws. Only when you feel that pain do you know that your teeth are getting straight or moving. Anybody who's worked out and has gotten, you know, done more than he or she thought possible in the weight room will know and appreciate the saying. Because without that soreness and pain, you know you're not growing and ripping up your muscles to become stronger and better. I love it. Well, well, let's talk about what to do with those savings then. So what methods did you choose to grow your passive income so that you could make this choice uh, late in your 30s, early in your 40s? Yeah. So the easiest way for me to build wealth was through real estate. It's in my culture that wealth equals real estate or a real asset. And it's the easiest asset or risk asset to understand. You know, how to value the asset by calculating the expected rent and the expected expenses and costs and taxes and so forth. Uh, you can make projections on the growth rate, the price appreciation rate, as well as the rental income growth rate. You can look at you know, the job market and so forth. So real estate was my main path to building wealth in my 20s. I bought my first real estate in 2003, 
a day after my 26th birthday in San Francisco, a two-bedroom, two-bath apartment in San Francisco. I was overlooking a park. It was for $580,000. And I thought, wow, that's so cheap compared to Manhattan because in Manhattan, it would be at least 40% more expensive, especially if you had a park view. I lived in that place for a couple of years and then I bought a house. I went all in on this house, every single penny I had and then some on a 20% down payment. And so I bought that house in 2005 and I lived in it until 2014. I rented that house out in 2014 till 2017. Um, and then I sold it and then I made a big mistake and I bought a vacation property in Lake Tahoe in 2007. And that was a terrible, terrible mistake. I thought I was getting a good deal. It went down 15%, but then when I bought it, and then it went down another like 30, 40% <laughs> during the financial crisis. Mm. Uh, so that was a key lesson uh, that I learned. And then I bought another property in 2014, which I'll probably run out because I'm looking for a new property right now. Okay. So you are, you're, you're bullish on real estate. I understand you also enjoy the crowdfunding side of things. Can you talk to us about what real estate crowdfunding is and why you like it? Yeah. So I love, as I get older and, and as once I became a father in 2017, I was just suffocating for time because I promised myself if I'm going to be a father, I'm going to try to be as president of a father as possible. And I think all parents promise this to themselves. And so I sold my San Francisco rental property that I had bought in 2005. Um, and what I thought about was, well, how am I going to reinvest this, these proceeds? And so I invested 30% or about $600,000 in dividend paying stocks, 30% in California municipal bonds, and then about 550000 in real estate crowdfunding. And before that, I had already invested 250000 in 2016, a year before, um, just to slowly build up that portfolio. And I like real estate crowdfunding because it gives you the ability to concentrate your positions in different parts of the country, but also diversify your positions as well. In the past, you needed you know, multi-millions of dollars to invest in commercial real estate. And commercial real estate is not what I had been investing in traditionally. I've been investing in condos and single-family homes. So being able to invest in commercial real estate, in other words, the mid-market, I thought was really attractive. Being able to take my expensive coastal city capital and reinvest it in the heartland of America, where cap rates are much higher, and where I think there's going to be great demographic growth, thanks to technology, uh, thanks to a government regime change, and just thanks to just shifting demographics that I believe will continue over the next 10, 20 years. I thought real estate crowding, crowdfunding was a really great concept and a great idea, and also the ability to make money completely passively. I had a lot of problems with my rental house that I sold in 2017. There was always some maintenance issue. I always had four or five dudes uh, rent out the place. It was never like a family of four or five. And you can't discriminate. And I, and I did look for like the best tenants possible, but it was always four or five dudes in San Francisco, probably because the tech scene was so heavy and it's dominated by males. And there would be parties and all that stuff. And I was like, well, there's no way I'm going to want to deal a single minute with this property as a first time father, forget it. I'm going to sell. And obviously also I got a great deal. I got a really good deal that I just, I just couldn't believe. 
That's great. That's great. Well, yeah, it sounds like a, a good option. So can you tell me the difference, I guess, in your mind, the difference between real estate crowdfunding and just buying a REIT, like, you know, like a REIT index fund, something like that? So REIT, you know, is a professionally managed portfolio of properties, and it's very broad. Generally, REITs are huge. They have hundreds, if not thousands of properties all over the country. You know, there are specialty REITs, like REITs like one one I own called OHI, Omega Healthcare, which specializes in properties for old folks. And I thought that was an interesting demographic uh, play on the aging of America. Um, but in general, REITs are much more broad, whereas real estate crowdfunding is much narrower. You can invest with specific sponsors you like in specific areas of the country in specific deals, debt or equity. So it's just a better way or it's a different way to allocate your capital. And it's considered an alternative uh, investment in which I think nobody should should allocate more than about 10% of their investable assets in, um, maybe 20%. But real estate crowdfunding is a way to diversify, but also to focus on different demographics and different areas of the country more specifically. Okay, so you might invest in a single, I guess, area or a specific property when you do crowdfunding versus a REIT? Yeah, so one example would be a... Um, a multifamily property in Arizona. So like student housing with 150 doors. And you think, well, maybe this part of Arizona next to the big university is good. And the sponsor has done three or four deals before with positive returns. This could be something interesting and you go for it. So it's a way to focus more of where you want your capital go around the country. And because all before real estate crowdfunding, all of my investments were in San Francisco, Lake Tahoe, Honolulu. It's just concentration risk, and I wanted to diversify that concentration. I could get, I could buy a REIT, and I do have REITs. You know, there's the big one, Vanguard REIT, the VNQ, and it's just a way to track the entire space, and it's done really, really well. For example, in 2019, you know, REITs are up 25, 30 percent. They're outperforming uh, the S&P 500 actually. Um, so I do both. Actually, I do three things, right? Own physical real estate, own REITs, and own real estate crowdfunding in areas which I think are going to be strong. And those areas to me are places like Memphis, uh, Dallas, Houston, basically heartland areas where I think there's a lot of growth and a lot of opportunity. I like that. I like that. I like that diversification. And I'm really interested in your point on, hey, I wanted to sell this property in 2017 because, man, that just seems like a lot of work. I've got a young child and it just doesn't seem like I want to, you know, get into that anymore. So what's making you now interested in buying something, I guess, and now we're in uh, early 2020 as we're doing this recording. What's what's making you interested in making some uh, some choices now in physical real estate again? So there's several things, actually. Uh, One, I think there's great opportunities to buy real estate in 2020 and beyond. The national median home price has been declining since 2017, actually. So it turns out that 2017 in the second half was a decent time to sell. The national median home price is down about 9% over a a two-and-a-half-year period. And if you look at the previous recession, um, the national home price went down about 17% over a similar time period, two and a half years. So we've gone through a a slight correction um, in two and a half years. 
and mortgage rates are down, wage growth, the median wage um, household income has finally busted through to, the, to its all-time highs a couple years ago. So you're seeing wage growth go up, mortgage rates come down, so affordability is up, and prices coming down. And so I think from a money-making perspective, there's opportunity here. There's more inventory around. And also, the hot money that we experienced, a lot of the coastal city uh, markets like LA, New York, Boston, DC, and San Francisco, and Seattle have experienced that hot money has all but dissipated uh, since 2017 as well, especially from China, where the government really clamped down on capital expatriation. And so that has provided opportunities for local residents, Americans, to buy our own property and not have to compete with all cash offers. And so I know from history that these things are cyclical. And I certainly believe that this hot money is going to figure out a way to escape, especially if there are trade war, you know, our trade war with China is going to be amended and things are going to improve because everybody's capitalistic and money will flow to where there's most opportunity. And I still believe areas like San Francisco, although expensive in America, is one of the cheapest international cities in the world. If you look at median home prices, for example, in Vancouver, they're very close to San Francisco at about 1.5 million. Yet not one person I've ever talked to can name one mega corporation that pays big bucks in Vancouver. Hmm. But if you talk to anybody about, hey, who's based in San Francisco? There's Apple. I mean, look at that stock price. It's crazy. Facebook, Google, all sorts of companies that are paying lots and lots of money. I think there's a great opportunity, especially with the wave of uh, liquidity coming to the market in 2020, thanks to the IPOs of companies like Uber, Lyft, Pinterest, and so forth. So from a financial investment perspective, there's opportunity. And then from a personal perspective, um, I think we might need a bigger house. We actually downgraded from a four-bedroom, is it one, four, four-bedroom, three-bathroom house. It was about, and it's not that big. It was, it was like 2,300 square feet, and a couple hundred square feet of that space was kind of not, not that great of a space. And we downgraded to a, well, now it's a 1,900-square-foot house. But we added someone to our family, our son. (laughs) So we have a three-bedroom, two-bath house, 1,900 square feet thereabouts, and and with like a little office in a small small room. And we just found that when we have visitors and friends over, it just gets a little bit too cramped. And if we decide to have another child, uh, I think it's going to be a little bit too cramped. So with the opportunity and potentially a growing family, I thought, hey, maybe now is the time. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. So let's talk outside of real estate for the passive income side of things. I understand you also invest in stocks and other things like that. Um, is that. Is that a portion of your portfolio? How did you decide how much to invest in real estate versus that? How do you make those decisions? Well, you know, because of my career in finance for 13 years, it was really interesting in specifically in equities. I was kind of gun shy about equities because I saw the collapse in 2000 and 2000 dot-com bubble. And then I saw another collapse, the housing collapse, which brought down the stock market in 2008 and 2009. So the majority of my income and my bonus money was reinvested outside of equities into real estate. Cause I needed to diversify. I couldn't lose money in, in equities and then, 
get my bonus cut and then lose my job and then, you know, I'd just be screwed. Right. So I needed to diversify. And today, basically I try to structure my portfolio so that no, no big category accounts for not much more than 30% of my net worth. So for equities, it's about 25% of my net worth Mm. for real estate. It's about, you know, 35% of my net worth. I've got a really large bond portfolio, municipal bonds. It's about 10 to 15% of my net worth. And then the rest are alternative investments such as real estate crowdfunding, uh, private equity, venture debt, and then also financial samurai, which has grown over time. So I've been very, very, I would say conservative since 2012, even though I do invest a lot. Uh, my goal has always been to try to beat the risk-free rate of return, which is the 10-year bond yield, times three. So if the 10-year bond yield is at 2%, my goal is to try to get a 6% rate of return. Um, but thankfully, due to the bull market, and it's not due to brains, it's due to the bull market, uh, my net worth has grown faster than 3x, the 10 risk-free rate of return. And so right now, I just feel like <laughs> it's just gravy. Because yeah. I left in 2012 because I thought I had enough, and then the market just keeps on going up, and I've continuously just reinvested most of my money because I've been pretty frugal most of my life. That's incredible. And where does your net worth sit around today, if that's something you'd be able to share? Oh, so I don't share that. Okay. But I, in 20, when I was, in, let's see, I hit a 1 million net worth in, when I turned about 28 and a half, and I didn't really know it. And then I got crushed. But then in 2012, the number that I have um, told people and written on my site was $3 million in 2012. Got it. So if we can just take advantage, take, take a look at 2012 and where the stock market has gone from 2012 till today, you guys can make a, make a good <laughs> guess on where our friend sits today. That's awesome. We'll be back to the show after a quick word from our sponsors. Are you looking for someone to walk alongside you on your journey to family financial independence? Well, I would love to help you achieve your goals and help your family thrive. I work with couples, individuals, and families all around the U.S. via video chat and can assist in the following areas. Becoming debt-free, growing your net worth, crafting and sticking to your budget, reviewing Coast Fire plans, developing strategies to build generational wealth for your kids, and designing your future work-optional lifestyle. Doesn't that sound nice? (laughs) If you're interested in working with me one-on-one, you can book a time with me by visiting marriagekidsandmoney.com slash coaching. I would love to help you strengthen your family tree and live financially free. Visit marriagekidsandmoney.com slash coaching to learn more, or you can click the link in our show description. If you're looking to improve your financial situation, it helps when you're able to cut out unnecessary costs. Cell phone services are a necessity for sure, but we don't need to be overpaying for them, right? That's why I like Tello Mobile, a phone service worth talking about. We've been fully on board as a family with Tello for over two years now, and we are so happy that we made the switch. For us, the reception and data service is better than Verizon, and our costs were nearly cut in half. 
Tello runs on the T-Mobile network and it's wowing new customers like us with their rock bottom prices and stellar service. With over 10,000 reviews, Tello is rated as excellent on Trustpilot, and this is quite rare in the wireless world. Nicole and I went for the unlimited data, minutes, and texting plan for only 25 bucks per month each. Isn't that crazy? You heard that right. $25 is their most expensive plan, actually. And Tello is running a special offer for MKM listeners right now. Check out Tello today at marriagekidsandmoney.com slash Tello. That's marriagekidsandmoney.com slash Tello. And use the code MKM20 to get 20% off on your first month of service for any Tello plan above that $10 per month mark. Again, use MKM20 to get 20% off at marriagekidsandmoney.com slash Tello, and you'll be supporting this show. Hurry up. The code is valid until April 19th, 2024. Marriagekidsandmoney.com slash Tello. Thanks for taking time to consider our sponsors, everyone. Let's jump back into the show. How did you decide when to invest in your retirement accounts versus taxable accounts so that you could live off the money today? Was it a max out one and then start investing in the other kind of situation? How did that work? So it was always since 1999, since I wanted to get the hell out of work, it was to max out my 401k every single year. So back then it was about 10,500 max and now it's 19,000. Um, and that's just going to keep on going up. Right. And so I've always had the mantra to max out your 401k, stick to my job for as long as possible. Cause they also provided profit sharing, which was great. And sometimes that profit sharing grew to like 20,000 a year. So that was like another match. And, you know, employees should realize that it's not just the maximum in your 401k that you contribute, but it's the maximum that your firm can contribute. And that, that total figure, contribution figure, is something like 55000 you got to take a look at the latest numbers. So just be aware that that 3% match or whatever, your firm can do much more if they wanted to and if they were more profitable. But once I got that match out of the way, and I got that out of the way, it was part of my daily routine since 1999, I specifically focused on saving as much money as possible in my after-tax brokerage accounts and then building real estate. So you know, it was it was basically max out my 401k and, and invest and save at least 50% of my after-tax and after 401k money. Because the goal, obviously, is to generate enough passive income to retire early because you cannot tap your 401k and IRA before 59 and a half without paying a 10% penalty. And you can, you, know, you can do some other things to withdraw it a little bit earlier. But my goal has always been to build that after-tax portfolio to as large of a number as possible, and then think about my 401k and IRA as just funny money, just gravy money. If it's there when I'm 60, awesome. If it's not there, well, it's fine because I never counted it on it in the first place. It's just exactly like Social Security. You pay an arm and a leg into Social Security to have the government redistribute your wealth and you know hopefully take care of its citizens, and if it's there... You know, when we're in 65, when we're 65 or 70, maybe great. But right now I'm discounting my social security to zero. Yeah, that makes sense. And I, I've heard of this term coast fire or coast fi, where you get to that point where you've saved so much in your retirement where you can say, Hey, well, in 30 years from now or 20 years from now, it's going to be a, 
a good amount of money. So maybe I'll just focus on other areas of my of my savings or enjoying life a little bit more. So it sounds like you've done that to an amplified level. Yeah, I was just on a mission to get out of work as soon as possible. And that's yeah. the irony of starting in a really difficult and stressful career is that it makes you really focused on your values, your goals, and your money. If I had a really cushy career that, you know, I can get in at nine o'clock and leave by five, nobody ever bothered me when I got home or on the weekends, I probably wouldn't save and invest as much. I probably wouldn't do as much research and learning about various types of investments. So I forced myself to understand balance sheets, cash flow statements, income statements. I forced myself to go to business school part-time while I was working 60, 70 hours a week. And I just forced myself to take those risks. Sometimes they paid off and sometimes I blew, you know, blew up in my face. But it's just that risk you've got to take. And again, you know, we're in this huge bull market since the financial crisis. But before the financial crisis, I was taking risks. And all of us, if we've been focused and have been you know, really, you know, specifically focused on a certain goal should be, should be doing pretty well or should have done well over these past 10, 20 years. Yeah. So when did you and your wife just sort of hit that button of we're done with the traditional working careers? How old were you guys? And tell, tell us how this, how that went. So I was 34 in 2012 and I had a net worth of about 3 million and I had passive income of about $80,000. And I knew that I wouldn't starve on $80,000. In fact, I thought I would live a pretty good life because we had bought our property and it was affordable because we had refinanced so many times. And my wife, who was three years younger, uh, still continued to work after I left because we decided, well, you're three years younger. Let me go on this early retirement path and do random things. If in three years, we're still surviving and I didn't just drown with debt <laughs> and, you know, lose all my money, then you too, at the age of 34 can retire too. And she's like, okay, that's fair. You know, we believe in equality. So we, so I grinded away, you know, writing on financial samurai and we did so much travel and all that fun stuff. And then it was really, it was really kind of a cozy environment because she had healthcare and I, I joined her healthcare program. And then she worked on some goals. So she knew she had like a three-year timeline to save and invest aggressively and to try to get promoted and all that. And then when she was 34, uh, she hit some goals, like a net worth goal, her personal net worth goal. And we, we, we figured, hey, this is the time. And the catalyst was negotiating a severance. So I negotiated a severance in 2012, which was the biggest catalyst for me to leave. I was able to negotiate all my deferred cash and stock compensation of three years and a private investment directors and managing directors had to invest in during the crisis that took seven years to vest. And I got a severance check as well. And so I was able to help her negotiate a severance package uh, that was pretty good as well. It was, it was worth over, the value was worth over a hundred thousand dollars. And so I said, well, it's good for her. And we, we did it on our own terms. We left on our own terms, which is really important to us. And that's, that's what it's been like. Excellent. And then when she was done, so that was probably 2015 around that time. Correct. Um, so what, what sort of income level were you living on at that point with regard to your passive income? 
So by 2015, so three more years. You said 80,000 in 2012, so 2012. Maybe, maybe 100 at that point because you were growing things? Yeah, it was definitely over 100. It was okay. probably like 100 to 120,000. Yeah. And because, you know, she was making a little bit over 100,000, and we had healthcare, and we had a really low cost, of, relatively low cost of living because we refinanced our mortgage. And I'm just pretty frugal in general. And so this is what also people don't realize is that when you leave your job, you naturally do things that you enjoy doing. It's just, just like water filling cracks and going where it wants to go. And so I decided to write on Financial Samurai more often. Uh, I was already doing three times a week and I continued to do three times a week. I wrote longer posts and I did stuff like that. And so from there, the online income grew as well. So it was passive income plus online income that really just kind of gave us more and more confidence. But then it was really um, the severance package that kept on paying. Like my severance package paid me something every year for five years wow. since I left in 2012. <laughs> every year I had a check of between, it was something like every year I had a check of between 40000 and $75,000. After tax. That is incredible. And so that was the key thing. And so when I when I talk to people who, who've been at their jobs for at least a couple years, two, three years, who want to retire early, I always tell them, never quit. Never quit your job. Get laid off instead. Because if you quit your job, you get nothing. You, you don't get a severance. You don't get any deferred compensation or unvested stock. You get absolutely nothing. You can't even apply for unemployment. Uh, because the unemployment office will say, well, you can't get unemployment because you quit instead of, instead of getting laid off. So it's something that I really hope that more people who want to retire before in the age of 59 and a half who don't have pensions will consider. Just have a conversation. There's no downside to asking your manager to work something out to help transition your exit for a severance. Yeah, that, that's a really smart way to go. And it sounds like both you and your wife uh, were able to do that and, and create a uh, good sort of cushy, nice income for yourselves as you moved into now this role of being stay-at-home parents. So talk to us a little bit about what life is like now that you are stay-at-home parents. I understand you're coaching tennis as well. Tell us a little bit about today. Yeah, wow. Being a stay-at-home parent is like the toughest job in the world. You know, it's on 5 a.m. till like 11 p.m. My, our boy doesn't sleep well, and he has the endless energy of the sun. It's kind of crazy. Like, I wish I wish he was like the guy who, you know, started sleeping through the night after six months. But he's two, two and a half years old now, a little bit over. And he still, you know, wakes up here and there, and it's just endless energy. I can't believe it. And I was thinking to myself, okay, think positive, think positive, think positive. And, because I just want to, like, take a nap. After uh, like one one p.m. because that that's been my tradition, especially you know since leaving day job in twenty twelve is to eat lunch, take a nap, you know, and he just keeps on going, and so life has been amazing, you know, it's more joy than you can ever imagine, but it's also been really difficult. The energy, the time, um, there's a lot of moments of frustration, sadness. Uh, one thing I'm going through right now is. Uh, having him try to bond with me a little bit more. Uh, you know, I've given up so much to just spend time with him. You know, we, we've been with him every single day for 30 months before he started attending preschool. And it's just trying to get that 50 50% balance of love for mommy and love for daddy, which, um, which is difficult. Like, you know, when I'm playing with him, 
sometimes after just 30 minutes, oh, where's mommy? You know, uh, I'm like, wait, what, what's wrong with me? What's wrong uh, with I'm, me, buddy? What, what am I? Am I, am I chump change? You know, <laughs> and uh, I've been having a lot of these thoughts and talking to other dads who, you know, given up their careers to be stay at home dads. And, you know, we, we invest so much time and it doesn't seem like, at least for some of us, we get as much love as mommy gets. And that might sound like a wussy thing to say, but when you spend so much time, all you want is love and all you want is for your little one to come and hug you and kiss you and just want to be with you. And so to get rebuffed sometimes hurts. Yeah. And so that's something that I'm uh, thinking about and dealing with a lot now. Yeah, I hear about that a lot. You know, I mean, for individuals like yourself who are hard charging, goal oriented, you know, moving towards the best life, you want to be the best father you can be as well. And for that, you're providing so much time and attention to him. And then the realities yeah. happen where he's like, no, nah, where's mom? <laughs> so you it's know, like, wait exactly. a second, what? <laughs> yeah. And, and so I, again, my, my mantra of always thinking positively is, okay, maybe this is a sign. So I don't, you know, I don't know what I don't know, but I just hear from other people. And that is, you know, the developmental years, you know, so close to mom, breastfeeding and all that. It's just natural to be closer to mom in the first several years. Um, but over time, maybe maybe the son will latch on more to the father as he develops and grows into becoming a man. But in the meantime, maybe this is a sign, hey, you don't have to be a stay-at-home dad anymore, especially since you just started going to preschool. You can go find something else to do that's rewarding and that can help the family. So I've definitely been thinking much more about maybe going back to work, at least in a part-time capacity, maybe being a consultant, or maybe just trying to figure out how to monetize Financial Samurai more. You know, stop writing posts um, that talk about stories and life and everything and start doing what other people do and, and try to really monetize their sites. <laughs> so these are some things I'm thinking about in 2020 and beyond. Yeah. For as much um, craziness as you and your wife have at the house with the 5 a.m. early and then 11 p.m. Uh, evenings, can you imagine working in your original careers while you're doing this, you know, raising of your child? You know, in the, first, in the beginning, I thought no. But it, after thinking about it, I thought, hey, that's actually a pretty good, good mix. You get to go to work. At seven, you get get there at seven a.m. and you come back at seven p.m. So you don't have to be a parent for fourteen hours. You come back, have dinner, say how your day was, and then he, he passes out in two hours. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, mean, right. I mean, so it's kind of like I, I I'm being very honest here. Yeah. In that I think be working sixty seventy hours a week in finance is like a walk in the park compared to being <laughs> a full time parent. Oh, and not wow. enough full-time parents get credit for what they do because it is it is like a war of attrition. You know, you got to sing that song 150 times in a row. <laughs> You've got to repeat those words maybe 200 times in a row. You got to spin them around in the chair maybe 30 times and make sure he doesn't, you know, vomit even though he wants to go more spin, more spin, more spin. And you got to make sure 24/7 he doesn't you know bonk his head in the corner or fall off the sidewalk and get hit, right? So it's a nonstop, nonstop uh, cycle. And while at work, you know, you know, you get your nice 30 minute commute, you can listen to music on your iPod. You know, after you do like an hour of work, you go to the water cool and talk, talk bad about your other colleagues and then, you know, <laughs> boss. And then you go get an hour lunch, right? And then, you know, you go back, do some more work. 
you know, come on, eight hour a day, people probably only work like three to four hours. And when I was there for 12 hours, maybe I was working five hours. Right. And then I would try to do some boondoggles with clients or whatever, go to a show, go to lunch, go to dinner, use the corporate card, whatever. I mean, that to me sounds amazing now. It's like a vacation. <laughs> so I love this full circle, man. This is great. I mean, you, you, you talk about, you know, building your building your passive income, at least so you have the choice, right? You've made the choice. And now you've got an experience of both sides. My wife, my wife just went back to work after being a stay at home mom for five mm. years. And she's, she must love she, it. yeah, she's describing the exact situation you're describing. She's like, Andy, I get to go to work. I get to check email. Nobody's bothering me. I went out to lunch <laughs> yeah. with my friends and we talked. I'm like, I'm like, yeah, baby, it's great, right? <laughs> I know. I mean, seriously, it, it, I think it would be amazing. And also, obviously, if you have enough passive income where you don't really need that job to survive, then I'm, how amazing would work be if you really didn't have to work and you just worked because you like the people and you enjoy the mission and what you do, right? Absolutely. You choose and where so, you want to work, right? Yeah. So I'm thinking, I'm really thinking about that because now I have six to eight hours more in the day thanks to preschool. And you know, when I first started preschool, I was like, oh, this is where creativity comes to die. And then I, two weeks later, I was like, oh my God, preschool is amazing. It's like a vacation every day for parents from Monday through Friday. It's like, oh, thank goodness. And so it's been, it's been a great journey. And, you know, just like as a parent, for those new, new parents out there, man, you just, just survive three years. Just tell yourself three years and things, I think, will get much better. That's such a good perspective. It's like young parenthood graduation, preschool or kindergarten. It just feels so good. Absolutely. Well, yeah. well Sam, this has been a great conversation. I want to ask one question before we go. So if somebody's listening and they're saying, well, I'd like to develop my passive income today, and I haven't really done much because I would like the option of you know choosing the type of place I want to work or stay at home with my kids in their first couple of years, what would be a, ver a, a good first step for them to decide where to start their passive income journey? Yeah, that's a great question. So you have to know several things. One, you got to know what you really want to do in your life and when you want to do it. You don't want to put your life on hold um, for a job that you don't really, really love. And passive income starts with the first step of savings. Save as much money as possible until it hurts. Because if it's not hurting, you're not doing anything to move the needle. It really needs to hurt because by when it hurts, you look at your expenses and you look how to optimize and you look at the risk that you take when making investments. Look at the big, big main ways to develop passive income and that's through the stock market, the bond market, and the real estate market. Start simple. Those are the three. Look at the returns, the historical returns. Make some calculated guesses on the future returns. Look at the interest rate and the capital needed um, to develop that passive income number. So if the interest rate is 2.5%, you need a million dollars to generate $25,000 a year in passive income. And there's various ways to do it. But focus on those big three, stocks, bonds, real estate. It's done well for so many Americans over the decades, over the centuries. It'll probably do well for you. 
And the more you get into it, the more you'll understand. And I think you're just going to get hooked on building passive income. You don't have to think, well, I'm going to, I need a hundred thousand dollar passive income immediately, you know, start with a hundred dollars. So how much capital do you need to generate a hundred dollars a year in passive income? You know, at a 2.5% rate of return, you need $4,000 in savings. So you save $4,000 a year at a 2.5% rate of return, you got a hundred dollars in passive income. What can you pay? with $100. Maybe you can pay your coffee expense for the year. Maybe, maybe not. And you just go in incremental steps, incremental steps. Okay, you checked off paying for coffee. Now I'm going to pay off lunch. Now I'm going to pay off dinner. Now I'm going to pay off my entertainment expense. For me, I've got a goal in 2020 to generate enough semi-passive income to pay for preschool, because preschool costs $1,950 a month plus donations, fundraisers. And I've got to pay for healthcare. Right now, our healthcare just jumped to $1,940 a month and oh <laughs> premiums, right? And that's crazy. And we never go to the hospital. And, and thank goodness we never go to the hospital. And, you know, we're pretty healthy. But man, $2,000 a month in premiums, and that's after tax money, is a lot, a lot of money. And if we have another child, our premium is going to go up to $2,400 a month. I mean, that doesn't sound reasonable at all. But I understand it's our duty as Americans to subsidize and help other people. It just costs a lot. Mm -hmm. And so the only thing I can do is figure out some goals. So my goal is to generate about $5,000 extra in passive income to pay for preschool and to pay for healthcare. And that's going to take, you know, just doing the math, that's going to take, let's see, at a zero, at a 2.5% rate of return, that's going to take, I don't know, $200,000. Ooh, that's, that, that, you know, it's, it costs a lot of money. That's just, so that's actually just per month, man, 5,000 per month times 12, that's $60,000 in passive income I need to generate to stay gainfully unemployed. That's $2.4 million in capital that I need to amass. Now, obviously, maybe I can generate more than 2.5%, or maybe I'll lose a lot of money because we're 10 plus years in the bull market and everything will go to hell, right? So I have to figure out ways, but I've got a goal, $5,000 to pay for preschool and healthcare to provide for my family, and so it's really clear. So come up with that goal, start small, work your way up, and I think you're, you're going to be all right. I love it. Well, that $5,000 a month, my friend, could be from a nice part-time job that you really like where you could get some lunch with some friends. <laughs> yeah, that'd be awesome. And and, and subsidized healthcare. Exactly, please. right. A little healthcare too as well. That'd be great. <laughs> well, Sam, this has been a great conversation. I really appreciate you sharing so much with us, inspiring us to grow our passive income, and then also realize the realities of being a stay-at-home dad, the, the benefits as well as the opportunities that you might see in the future for you and your family. So where's the best place for people to connect with you and learn more? So you can just check out financialsamurai.com. Uh, you can check, my, check out my about page. I'm on Twitter sometimes. I, I don't try to, I'm off social media a lot. I try to chunk it maybe like 10 minutes a day and that's it. Um, but financialsamurai.com is always great. I'm always reading the comments and I, I respond to 70 plus percent of the comments that need responding to. So if you ever need me, the comment section is probably the best way to go. And you'll find a lot of interesting, different perspectives in the comment section as well. Excellent. Well, Sam, thank you so much for your time today. And I really appreciate uh, you connecting. 
Thanks, Andy. Take care. Passive income, fatherhood, and planning for the future. That that was a lot of fun. (laughs) Here are my top three takeaways from my conversation with Sam Dogan. Number one, diversify your passive income streams. Sam shared that he diversified his income streams across bonds, equities, real estate, and his online business. This way, if one of them decreased or lagged behind, he'd have the other income streams to support him. And then he diversified further into real estate across physical real estate, real estate, crowdfunding, and REITs. So he diversified his diversification. (laughs) Think about your current portfolio or the one you want to create with diversification in mind. It's worked well for Sam. Number two, set small passive income goals and grow from there. Sometimes we can hear stories like Sam's and get kind of discouraged. Man, there is no way I can get to $100,000 of passive income or $200,000 of passive income. That is insane. And that's okay. Think about how cool it would be to have enough passive income to pay for your coffee for the rest of the year or your coffee for the rest of your life or even enough to pay for an annual vacation for the family each year. Setting these mini goals like that will get you excited to continue to move on. That's where my head is at lately. I've got about uh, $10,000 in taxable investments. If I can get that to $20,000, then I can cover the the swim summer fees at our local swim club each year. That'd be cool. (laughs) Number three, realize the stay-at-home parent role isn't a permanent thing. I love the way our conversation ended. Sam is now at a point in his life where he now wants to work, but this time around, he's seeking out part-time work that he enjoys. Being a stay-at-home parent is a lot of work. It can be emotionally, physically, and mentally draining, but it can also be incredibly rewarding, and you have the ability to create a bond with your child that will last a lifetime. There's nothing wrong with choosing to go to work or choosing to stay at home with your kids. They're all just choices that are personal to you. But I do think it's pretty great to have options, whether it's debt freedom or paying off your mortgage or a healthy amount of passive income, a strong financial picture for your family gives you the confidence to explore those options. And Sam is definitely exploring them. Sam, thank you so much for being so open and honest with us about your family and your finances. I think that type of transparency really helps people win, and I really admire that about you. Thanks again. As a quick reminder, everybody, this show is for entertainment purposes only. Be sure to seek out a professional for your specific financial situation. A big thanks to Dan Tabbitt for editing today's show and to Alec Collins and Dan Hines for putting together our YouTube videos. We now have over 3,000 subscribers on YouTube, so please come check us out there at youtube.com slash marriagekidsandmoney. Hit the red subscribe button. And you can see some of these videos in person, which is cool. In the spirit of growth and inspiration, I'm going to end the show with a quote today from Dale Carnegie. Inaction breeds doubt and fear. Action breeds confidence and courage. If you want to conquer fear, don't sit home and think about it. 
Go out and get busy. Do your research and then take some action to build the life of your dreams, my friends. Carpe diem. Carpe diem.